Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to finish up our series on Philippians today. I'm excited about finishing up today. And then next week, we're actually going to look in the Old Testament for a couple of weeks as we prepare ourselves for Easter and what is to come. Uh, just so you know, four weeks from today is Easter. So that's uh, exciting. It's coming. It's here, right, as we kind of prepare and think through that direction. Also let you know that next Sunday is Daylight Savings Time. All the God's people said, Ugh. I love the later afternoon sun. I don't like the getting up that first week. So uh, that's next Sunday. So make sure you're aware of that and you take care of that um, as we prepare for that. Um, one, one little moment I want to take and just say a word of thanks. All right. Um, over the last several weeks, um, there have been some guys that have been working in and around the church, specifically in some of our office areas. Many of you may know that when we remodeled um, this sanctuary uh, nine years ago or so, that we remodeled a part of the offices, but there are parts of it that weren't. And the Building and Grounds Committee has been talking about it for a while with some new carpet and paint and walls and some of those kind of things. And so this year they decided it was the year, talked to finance, got it approved, but it was approved because we were going to have all the labor done inside, in, in-house. And so Michael Richardson, who does our maintenance, um, got a crew together, property and grounds helped out, and they have been working on it for the last several weeks, and they're almost done. They're not quite done, but it is a dramatic transformation in some of the spaces that we spend a lot of time as your staff, and I am very thankful for Michael and for the Building and Grounds Committee, for Bobby Fentress, who um, has been helping with the paint, for um, Chris Scheide, who is the chairman of that committee, and the work that they have done. I'm especially thankful to three guys who have volunteered their time and have been here about um, four to five hours a day, four or five days a week working on it. And uh, that is Mr. Steve Norman. I'm very thankful to him. Uh, Steve Johnson and Mr. Jimmy Edwards. And so not all of them are here, but they may be watching. Would y'all just show appreciation for them putting in work? It hasn't been glamorous work. It's been ripping up carpet on knee pads and all kinds of stuff. But it's been, it's a great, great uh, thing that they've done and they helped out with. So I really do appreciate that. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to finish up our series today, as I said. And um, I looked at and, you know, I study and read commentaries. I look at other sermons. I read all of the kind of stuff. And apparently what I'm trying to do today is not advised because almost everybody breaks this up into about five different sections. And we're going to do it in one, all right? And so here's the reason that I want to do it in one is because I think that chapter 4, verses 2 through the end of the book give us a practical understanding of what the rest of the book has been talking about. In fact, I think it's more direct than that. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that we are to stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And Paul used that phrase again and again, stand firm, stand firm. He used it when he talked about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. He uses it in this chapter. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. And the idea is that we are to remain faithful in what we're doing. What this chapter does, the rest of it from chapter um, verse 2 to the end, gives us the how to stand firm in a culture that might be set against us. It's the practical steps to live out the principles that he's been talking about for the previous three chapters. 
And so today I want to use this as kind of an overview of the book to talk about what Paul has taught us over these last several weeks and then the specific applications that he gives for each of those and pray that God will land one or two of those specific applications in our lives that we can work them out as we live for the Lord in the week ahead. And so we're going to start just by reading the entire section the entire 20-so verses that come from this passage, and then walking back and talking about what we've learned. Starting in verse 2. So he said, stand firm in verse 1, starting in verse 2. I urge Eudoia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to do, make do with a lot. In any of these circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gifts, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now here are a couple of things just to notice before we dive into specific applications we have. If you remember way back when we started this, the first week of January, one of the things that we talked about is the reason Paul wrote this letter is because the people in Philippi were really concerned about him. They had heard he was in prison. They had heard that he was there and, and that he had been taken prisoner without any real uh, chance of being out. Now, he was probably under house arrest at this moment, perhaps. He may have been chained to a Roman official. But the point is that they knew he was in prison and they were concerned about him. What I think is interesting is Paul gives a brief update at the beginning and then he concludes the letter saying, now what you really want to know about, let me tell you how I'm doing. And he tells them, I'm good. 
And so in the, what he does in before that, before he says, I'm good, before he says, tell everybody hello, tell them all I love them, everybody here says hello to everybody there, y'all take care of yourselves. Like before he does that at the end, he challenges them in some very specific ways. He takes what he had been teaching throughout the rest of the letter and then says, here's a specific application to it. So for instance, the first thing that we see here is something we have seen throughout this letter, and it is simply this. That we need to strive for unity. That we need to work towards, work out unity in our midst as a church body. Now I want you to get the picture of what this would have been like. It's easy for us to think today in the setting we're in that churches have kind of always been like this. But this is not how churches have kind of always been. Hadn't been a big stage, definitely not a TV. They didn't have a TV back in Jesus' day and Paul's day. I don't know if y'all knew that or not, but when teaching from that. And so what we have here probably is that they were meeting in someone's home. Probably a larger home in the community that would accommodate them. One of the people that was working um, for the Lord, living their lives out for the Lord, had a nicer house. And so they had them in. That's kind of what happened from all over Philippi. And they would have been gathered around. And they would have had this letter sent from Epaphroditus and said, Hey, we've got a letter from Paul. We've been concerned about Paul. Paul has written you a letter and we're going to read it tonight. And so they would have all come around excited to hear what Paul had to say. They would have gathered like, we, we, we love Paul. We have been waiting to hear from this. This is like the biggest thing that's come out. We are so excited about this. What does Paul say? Paul begins by giving them all kinds of theological stuff, all kinds of big picture stuff. And then he gets to the end and he gives them some specific application. Now, I want to, you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting there and you're listening and you're taking all this in. And you happen to be Eudoya or Syntyche. And so he's talked a lot about unity, right? Hey, be of the same mind. Be united. Be, be who God has called you to be. He, in fact, uses the same phrase here in chapter 4, verse 2, as he uses in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, be of the same mind. This time, however, he doesn't say, hey, church, be of the same mind. He says, you two women get on the same page. Now, imagine you're there and you're them. Imagine if, I don't know, today... Your pastor stood up and said, I need, and I named you and somebody else, to get your acts together. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Be fun for you. Probably be fun for me the next day. It'd be a great time for all, right? First of all, I do think it says something about the maturity Paul thinks those women have and the church has to be able to name them at the beginning, or at the end of this letter, saying, hey, this is the main issue that we have with unity in this church. But I want you to notice something else. He says, tell them to agree with the Lord, to be of the same mind. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the fact that churches like to talk, especially in our day, in a democratic society, in a congregational model of a church where we vote on things as a church family and we have committees and people like to say, if you get 15 people in a room, you're going to have 15 different opinions. And the truth is, he says again the same thing here. These two women may have differing opinions or ideas. They may be in dispute, but they need to come together to be of one mind. Whether that means one of them is right or the other is right or neither is right, they need to find that common ground, which is the Lord's mind, and work towards it. But here's what's interesting. He says this isn't a personal problem for these two women. 
He basically says, and you need to do whatever you can as a church to make sure they reconcile. It is the church's responsibility to settle this personal disagreement or at least help in the process of that. Because it matters to the unity of the church. There are lots of conditions out there under which God will not work in a church setting and will choose other ways to accomplish his task. But one of the first on that list is when there is a unity, I mean, excuse me, a spirit of disunity in their midst. When there is arguing and fighting or gossip or second glances or a lack of trust. When people aren't willing to give up their own rights and responsibilities and preferences for the rights and responsibilities and preferences of others. When churches aren't willing to settle disagreements quickly and in a way that honors the Lord, the Lord will choose other methods to use to work in his world. It feels like almost every week in this book we've talked about unity in some way. And that's because Paul knew of its importance and he talks about it at almost every step of the way here he's told us throughout the book how we find that unity we find it through humility of thinking of others before you think of yourself of setting aside your preferences and your desires in order to see other people served of seeking the lord with all that we have a passionate pursuit of him and focusing on the purpose we have as church for the gospel of jesus christ he says these two women need to come together because the church needs to come together and we need to do whatever we can to make sure that happens. Now, we don't have anybody with these two names in our church today. I don't know the last time I heard of anybody with these names. All right? But you get the point, right? That if there is disruption, if there is disagreement, if there is disunity in the church, we need to be proactively seeking it out and bringing it to reconciliation. The second thing that has been throughout the book is that we are to find joy in the peace that God has and praise him for it. The word joy is used again and again, and he starts it right here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. The word there literally means to speak your joy, to say your joy. And the idea is that it is a present verb, which means that it is again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Rejoice over and over and over and over and over and over again. Give praise to God for what he has done. Give thanks to God for who he is. Give praise to him for the things that he has accomplished in your life. Say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Every circumstance of our life can have joy for us if we are found in Christ. Even the most difficult moments of our lives can be moments of joy if we are found in Christ and settled in Him. That doesn't mean we like what's happening, but we can find our joy in Christ. And He gives us a reason for that. He says, let your graciousness, that word there means your gentleness, your kindness, the kind of thing that bears up under significant suffering or persecution or difficulty in life. He's saying, be gracious in that moment. Don't demand your rights. Don't say that I've got to have this way, but be 
willing to accept your lot in life and trusting the Lord in the midst of it because the Lord is near. Paul is reminding them, yes, and he's all goes back to where he is. Yes, he's in prison. He's going to tell them, I'm fine. But he realizes that in that moment, God is using him for the glory of his name, the spread of his kingdom. How do we know that? Well, he told us that at the very beginning, but I want you to notice a little detail that happens near the end of this book that often gets skipped over because we don't read the, it's like the end credits of a movie. Like we don't sit through those unless it's a Marvel movie and we think there's going to be something else at the end. It says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to whose household? Caesar's household. That means that Paul has made an impact into the strongest ruler of the day's household with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that wouldn't have happened without him being imprisoned in Rome. Paul says, in every circumstance, find joy because of the peace that God is bringing us. And we know that it is a temporary moment of suffering compared to the eternal difference that we have in Christ. We talked about this last week with the rope that extends out the church and down to City Hall and that the life that we live on this earth is but the red marker on the tip of the end of the rope compared to the rest of the life that we have in eternity. He says, yes, you may be suffering now. Yes, I may be in prison now, but I know it is for the glory of God's name, for the sake of his kingdom, and it is but a temporary thing. So I rejoice in the Lord. Now, I just want to make a real clear distinction I think the Bible makes here and in other places, and it is simply this. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever moment we find our lives in, whether good, bad, or indifferent, we must rejoice in those moments. We don't necessarily have to rejoice for those moments. We don't necessarily just say, thank you, Lord, for this terrible thing that has happened to me. But we say, thank you, Lord, in the midst of this terrible thing that has happened to me. There's a significant difference. I know it's just two little words, but significant difference in thanking God for the bad things in my life and thanking God in the bad things in my life. God allows all things to happen to us, but some things that happen happen because of our own bad choices or the bad choices of other people or because of the broken world we live in. It is not necessarily all sent by God. And so we thank God in the midst of every circumstance of our lives. And so he tells them, We're to strive for unity. We are to praise God and find joy in our peace with Him. And the way that we find that peace is to focus our lives in the right direction. Verse 6 is most often quoted when Jesus talks about worry. We preach on Jesus talking about worry a lot. We'll say, hey, and by the way, in Philippians, Paul reminds us not to worry. But it sounds like Jesus again. Don't worry about anything. Now, we're into words around here that mean what they say, like all, right, and every. And we know that it says here, don't worry about anything. You know what anything means? Anything means anything. Yeah, but they didn't know what kind of world we would be living in. We've been wearing masks for a year. We're worried to hug people that we know and care about a lot. We sit, stand six feet apart. We're in a 
grocery store and someone comes up on the back of our neck and starts, we feel, we get nervous all of a sudden. Don't worry about anything. Kids schooling hadn't been what it's always been. There's been hybrid models or not in school or we've been, but it's different. They're wearing masks and not able to communicate and talk and be like it's been. They haven't been able to have the functions like they did. We don't worry about anything about what's the impact that's going to have on their lives or what's going to happen with them. We don't worry about anything. Well, I got a test result last week and man, it's not good. And I feel that verse that says this outward body is wasting away. I'm not supposed to worry about anything. In fact, I think there are some of you in this room that would make a bargain with God. Say, could you just let me worry about a couple of things? Could you just let me worry about these two? Scripture says we don't worry about anything. And he gives us the way to not worry in everything. It doesn't mean that it's not serious. It doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't gloss over the fact that we live in a fallen world or difficult times. He says, but in everything. So we don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we present your request to God. So he says, every way that we can, we go to the Lord. Every situation must be covered in prayer. We must pray comprehensively. He uses three different words for praying here, saying whatever it is, whatever method it is, on your knees before the Lord, it's open up, like staring at the sky, screaming at the Lord, talking to Him, telling Him what you really feel, like having a conversation with the Lord, driving in your car, hopefully not with your eyes closed, like talking to the Lord. Like in all of those ways, in everything, cover your life in prayer, and instead of worrying about any situation, Pray about every situation. The focus is on the Lord. And it says when we do that, and I love this, that when we don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we present our request to God. That's when the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Most of the time when we quote those two verses, we quote them separated from each other. Lord, I pray the peace that passes all understanding will be in their lives. Lord, we pray that we won't worry about anything. But he says, what happens is, worry removes the peace of God from your life. Or let me rephrase that. Worrying removes your understanding and your like experience of the peace of God in your life because you were trusting in yourself or someone else or worried about something else than not putting it in the control of God. When you give it to the Lord, when you pray to Him, when you say to Him, Lord, I am praying about everything about this. Lord, take it. We're putting on You, Lord. We're trusting You. That when that happens, the peace of God, the wholeness of God, the assurance of God, the truthfulness of God, the calm of the Lord will settle into your life and it will surpass anything that you can understand. And he says it also matters where we focus our attention. Not just, hey, and anything that you've got a problem with, don't worry about it, but pray about it. He also says, and in your mind's ability, focus on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. He says to take your mind. So, We've got worry in our heart. We pray to the Lord. This is what we've got. And then we seek out good, noble things in our lives. True means that it is absolute. It flows from God. 
Noble means it is worthy of respect. Right means that it is just or righteous. Pure doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it has no problems. It just means that it is completely of God. It is godly. Lovely is agreeable. Admirable is worthy of praise. And then he puts these two at the end and says, If there is anything that is of moral excellence or praiseworthy, dwell on those things. Focus on those things. Put those things at the forefront of your mind. Study God's word. Spend time with God's people. Find excellent things to which you can think. And that's when the peace of God will settle in your life. Paul's reminded of this of this again and again throughout this book. He told us, if you remember just a couple of chapters ago, that he fixed his eyes on Jesus completely, that he had one thing that he wanted to do was to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, to suffer with him. That his focus was not on the circumstances that were bad around him, but were on things that were noble and true and pure and right and lovely and admirable. And then he gives us another idea that we need to follow. And that is to live our lives content, trusting the Lord. Be content and trust God. He goes on to say, hey, listen, thank you so much for what you sent. I don't know what they sent, but it was apparently a really nice gift of money or support or something that they sent. He loved it. He says, thank you for that. He's telling them, thank you for that. This is a thank you note to them. And then he says, not that I really needed it, which is kind of a weird thank you, right? Thank you so much for what you sent. I didn't need it, but thank you. Said I didn't because I can live with or without. Now, I'm very appreciative, he says, of who you are and what you've sent me and your generosity. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, but I have learned that the key to life, the secret of being content, is that I can do any circumstance in my life as long as I am trusting in and following Jesus. I've told you this before. Philippians 4.13 may be the most misused verse in all of Scripture. Football teams yell it before they run onto the football field. People get ready to do an impossible task in life and say, I'm able to do it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is not about our personal capability or our personal achievement. This is about, in this verse, in this context, what it means is no matter what life throws at me, I will be content in the Lord because I can handle any situation because of Jesus Christ. Anything that comes my way is not too big for me. It's not too overwhelming for me. It's not too difficult for me to handle in a way that is proper and godly because of Jesus Christ as I focus on him. So Paul commends us, says to us that what we need to do is that we need to focus our life's attention on being content and trusting him no matter the circumstances that are around us. And then the last thing he does or says to us is this in this book. He commends them for this, and so it becomes a commandment for us, if you will, that we are to live generously. We are to live our lives generously. 
He tells him in verse 13, I'm okay. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Thank you for that. But then he says, but thank you for partnering with me. And here's what's interesting. He tells them that because of their generosity, because of what they have given, because of what they have done. Notice he says, it wasn't that I needed it. He says, you sent me gifts. In verse 17, I didn't seek the gift, but this is what I love. He says, but I'm excited because of the profit that is increasing in your account. Think about what he says. You sent me this great gift. You sent me this great thing. And I'm appreciative of it. And I'm thankful for it. But I'm most excited about the fact that you are building up treasures that cannot be taken away by your actions. I'm more excited for you giving and what you're receiving from your giving than I am for giving and receiving. When we think back to Jesus' own words when he said, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and... Pestilence and animals can take it away, but build up for yourself treasures in heaven where they can't. One of the things that I think our generation, I'm using that term broadly, so our time, our day of Christians in America struggle with more than we realize is living generously. Because we have so many commitments for what we earn and what we have that we don't have the margin in our lives to live generously for the praise and the glory of God and for the spread of his kingdom. We have too many bills to pay at the end of the month. We have not enough money to pay those bills some month. We pay ahead by paying with credit cards that we come due later. And we just don't have the margin in our lives to live generously. And Paul says in this passage, as Jesus would say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, you are receiving more by your generous lifestyle than I am. It goes back to Paul's call for us to live like Christ, who, even though he was in the form of godliness, and I consider that something to be grasped onto, but made himself a servant, a servant unto death, and gave himself up for us. And that we are to live our lives In a way that is generous with our time, with our talents, with our money, with our resources, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And before he says his final goodbyes, he gives a reminder that everything we do, absolutely everything we do, When he talks to them about standing firm and striving for unity and praising God and focusing in the right direction and finding joy in his peace and being content and trusting him and living generously. He says, we do all of that, it says in verse 20, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so this book of Philippians, Paul writes to a people that love him, that are concerned about him, says, I'm fine, I'm fine. You need to get your house in order. There's disunity that needs to take place. You need to humble yourselves and serve your fellow believers and the outside world. And you need to take the gospel as the most important thing in your life and live passionately devoted to it. And that's my question to you today. Is that what you are doing? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would stand firm in our faith that we would strive for unity in this place, that we would trust you at all times and find the joy that comes, the peace that you bring when we trust you. 
Lord, that we would be content in all that you've called us to be and to do. Lord, that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would just know that it's okay because you're with us. We would focus our mind's attention on things that are noteworthy and noble and good and true. And Lord, that you would allow us to live lives that are generous for the sake of your name and the spread of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would move in and through our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.